hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking, edited by Ira Henry Freeman. This is the eighth part of the reading, and we're on story seven. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 7. It's Easy When You Know How by Thomas Fleming Day On the east coast, you see scores of seabird-type yawls, many of them homemade by talented amateurs. The original seabird, a 25-foot economy job, was sailed by Thomas Fleming Day and two companions from Providence, Rhode Island, to Gibraltar in June 1911. In those days, long ocean passages in tiny yachts were uncommon and the feasibility wanted proving. Day and his crew, Theodore Goodwin and Fred Thurber, all expert yachtsmen, accomplished the voyage without incident. A few years later, the intrepid Day captained Detroit, a small motorboat, from New York to St. Petersburg in Russia. Day, the late editor of Rudder magazine, was also a poet of sorts, as you may guess from the following account of his 17-day passage in Seabird. Incidentally, Day's success inspired Henry Pidgeon, a middle-aged California photographer, to build himself a 34-foot version of Seabird and sail her alone around the world in the early 20s. I'm going to ask you to leave home for an hour or so and join me on Seabird. The time I want you is, say, between 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock on the afternoon of June the 22nd. You can sit on the house or stand in the companion, whichever you prefer. At first, finding yourself suddenly off the land and nearly halfway across the Atlantic, with a strong breeze blowing and a high sea running, you would be a bit frightened, but after a few minutes, realising that there was no danger, you would settle down to enjoy the experience of running a gale in a small boat. Looking around on every side, you would see huge seas racing away from southwest to northeast, great hill-like masses of intensely blue water with their heads crowned with crests of breaking, frothing white, which, as they swept past, seethed and hissed like a nest of angry serpents. These blue heaps, foam-capped, extend from horizon to horizon, rolling, running, leaping, seeming at times to play together like young dogs, and then again to spring at each other like angry tigers, tearing and frothing as they roll over and over in a mass of white and blue. In the centre of this turmoil is Seabird, the only thing except sea and sky within radius of sight, a speck of rounded sail. Watch her. She lurches to the top, pauses for an instant, cradled in the broken crest, and then, with a rush of wind and a cloud of spray, dashes down the steep side into the trough. Here, becalmed for an instant, she seemingly hesitates, gives a lee lurch and a weather roll, and then up and again and over. Two men are on her deck, one at the tiller, alert and active, the other quietly seated on the weather side. 
His body close down in the pit, and his arm over the combing holds an oil can. He keeps a sharp lookout astern over his shoulder, as does the helmsman. Big one! he exclaims, and from the can spout lets fall a drop or two of oil. The helmsman measures the breaker with his eye, and at the right instant gives Bird a touch of the helm. The broken, seething mass rushes for the stern, its feet strike the oil, slip up, and it falls and slides past in a hissing foam patch on either side. That was a corker, says the man at the helm. Good old bird, exclaims his mate, giving the little boat an affectionate pat. And so she runs, making five or six knots overseas from fifteen to twenty feet, from trough to crest. At first a bit fearful, you soon grow to love this racing with the gale. All thought of danger vanishes from the mind, and you make yourself part of the plucky little boat, and laugh and sing as she leaps and swings over the crests. Don't worry, shouts Bird, these seas can't drown me. Give me sail enough to keep my pace, and I'll jockey the worst of them. But the long hours of this constant watching and racing bring a strain on muscles and mind, and the ocean under the lash of the increasing wind is beginning to get ugly. The seas crush and tumble together, break and drop over, and even in the trough the water is ragged and full of swirls. It is beginning to tell on Bird. She has lost some of her jaunty confidence, and she slips and staggers a bit as if tired. It is time for boat and man to have a rest. I go below and have a look at the glass. Still falling. More wind to come and more sea. Better lay to now before it gets worse. Having made up your mind to lay to, the next thing to decide is what under. If not blowing too hard, I usually lay to with bird or any yawl under a close-reefed mainsail, but if a stiff gale, this is too much cloth. A small jib and a reefed jigger is sometimes good sail, but no rule can be laid down. It depends on the boat, the sea, and the heft of the wind. I decided to try bird under a reefed jigger, and if not enough to add the mizzen staysail. Taking the helm, I called all hands. Set the jigger, and stand by to take off the jib. And round comes Bird on a port helm, and as the headsail drags, slatting and rattling down the stay, she pokes her nose into the wind's eye, and then falling off, rides the next big one half-breast too, like a wing-tired gull. We watched her for a minute or two, and then seeing the jigger was not enough, gave her the mizzen staysail, Better, but perhaps after all she will ride easier and more comfortably to the sea anchor. Then she will lie head to it, so we rig the anchor. Several years ago I met Captain Andrews, the man who crossed the Atlantic in a small craft called Dark Secret, and in our conversation asked what he had used for a sea anchor or drogue. He told me he used his anchor, just letting it go with all the road and that it held the boat's head up. I tried the same plan and found it to work well, as long as the sea heads were not running, but at such a time there was not sufficient resistance and the boat was apt to be thrown and brought beam to. To prevent this, I added a board to the anchor lashed across the arms and flukes. This makes an excellent drogue and does not take up any room, the anchor being there anyway and the board stowing in a small space. A drogue is clumsy and takes up a lot of room. After lying to for a few minutes, we rigged the anchor, bent on about 300 feet of road, and let it go. 
It tailed out ahead as Bird was travelling stern first at the rate of two knots or more, and when it came to rest it was floating about two seas off, I suppose ten fathoms below the surface. It did its duty, and with her nose pointed right into the wind, the little yawl rode with an easy motion and dry decks. Except for a slight spraying, thus did Bird ride out the gale. Once and once only did she ship solid water. This came overside and filled the cockpit, probably a lurcher or cross-sea that caught her unawares. The reason for having dry decks was that the anchor, while having hold sufficient to keep her head up, did not have hold enough to prevent her going sternward with each send of the sea. As soon as she was anchored and the road well armed with old canvas, I jumped below for a dry and a rest, and the boys soon followed. In the cabin, out of the rush of the wind, and the boat riding with an easy, sweeping motion, you would hardly have known that you were at sea. I have been lots more uncomfortable, anchored in a harbour. What would the crepe wavers think of this? A forty-mile breeze and a big sea and all hands down below, taking things easy, says the mate. I suppose they picture us wailing and praying, clinging in white-faced agony to the mast, while the merciless ocean dashes its rude billows over our half-numbed bodies, says the skipper. Ain't it awful, this here ocean, and we are photographing it? My, my, what would mother say? Let's take a peep into the cabin that afternoon about three o'clock and see what the terror-stricken mariners are doing. Well, the skipper is half lying, half sitting, forward, chocked in between the bunks, needle and palm in hand, leisurely sewing the seams of a bag to hold the colours. The engineer is writing up his log, and the mate is stewing a dish of prunes. Outside, Bird and the Gale are having things all to themselves. Once in a while, we would take a look outside. Don't worry, Bird would say. I'm on the job. And she was, God bless her, making beautiful weather of it. The bird, the sea, and I had many a watch together. It was when the wind in one of his fickle moods had deserted us, or had grown too lazy to more than hold the sails asleep. Then the thought of the immensity of the stretch of water on which we floated came over us, and we shuddered a bit with loneliness, and called on the sea to join our watch. Let us spend a wild, windy four hours together, Say the night of June the 26th, or early morning of June 27th. What says the log? This day begins fine and clear. Brisk wind from same quarter. Lumpy sea. Boat driving hard and throwing water. No clouds at noon. Fine sights. Rough sea for so small a wind. No birds. Strong wind and rough sea at night. Boat jumping and pounding. Starboard water tank all gone. Run 123 miles. The wind is south by east, and the course east, so that is a point forward of the beam. Bird is under close-reefed main and jib and jigger, and is making five knots hour in and hour out. If you have ever driven a small boat at a continual five-knot gate with a strong beam wind through a heavy beam sea, you can take what I am going to tell you and warp it into a picture. The next man is sleeping or trying to sleep, chocked in between the bunks, when the cry comes down the hatch, One bell! He sits up, yawns, stretches, and sings back, All right! He knows the boat is going, for he can hear the gurgle of the water under the chines and feel the speed tremble, and if that is not enough evidence of what is doing outside, every ten seconds she hits a hole and drops into it with a crash, 
or takes a smasher under the quarter that shakes up the kitchen and sets the pots and pans a-ringing. A grope for the electric light switch and a small glim is turned on that gives sufficient light to find your clothes, a drink and a potato or two. This hearty meal done and it is on oilers. This is performed with your head, poked out of the companion. It is black as pitch. The sky is ink to your coming out of the light and the ocean a mass of white heads. The helmsman shining like a man armour clothed in the binnacle rays, his oilers dripping, the jigger a swollen shadow and the wind whistling and woofing. How's she doing? Fine. Had her up to southeast by south nearly all the watch. She just broke off again to the southeast. Pretty wet. Seas more ahead and breaking nasty. What do you make? Oh, a good twenty. Any sleep below? Not much. She pounds like the devil. I wish we could let her off a point or two or this darn wind would haul to the westward. All right, I'll take her now. The weary one crawls below and you and the bird are left together for a four-hour tussle with wind and sea. During this run, which lasted six or seven days, the one question was, how is her head? If during the watch it had been kept south of southeast, all hands were happy. If north of southeast, we all had a grouch. The course was due east, and to keep this we had to steer by the steering compass southeast, there being a four-point westerly error. This night she made her course, steering east by south true, and the next day was one mile the better in latitude, so that was not one of the helmsman's troubles. But his watch was no soldier's watch. Sitting in the weather corner of the pit, a rubber blanket over his feet and legs, one hand on the tiller and the other gripping the combing, eye on the compass, he drives bird on her course. It is eye-wearying watching the compass, the light is unsteady and the glass frosty with salt. The stars are out, and the helmsman gets bird on the course and picks out the largest one he can find ahead, keeping the dancing point of light twixt the weather shroud and the mast. He steers the course, with an occasional glance at the card to make sure he is holding her true. It is wet work, and if she weren't making her course she would be anything but contented. Five knots and due east makes up for a lot of discomfort, and you whistle and sing as she drives into it and flings the sea in handfuls at you. The sea is tall and rugged, not a sea that would bother if you had it over your shoulder, but swinging in on the rigging it is somewhat nasty. Off the wind, Bird would carry all the rags, but sometimes even the reefed mainsail seems too much. The watch below are hugging themselves that the mainsail is tied in, for it means no call and five wet, long, cold minutes on deck. At first, when called out, we came with our clothes on, but a few experiences taught us to leave what dry things we had below, and it was a funny sight, reefing in a squall, the rain and hail pouring down on the unprotected hides of the crew as they jumped about on the cabin top. There was no soldiering those nights. Reef and run was the word. I always hated to call the boys out, and for this reason usually reefed before the other man went below. It does not pay to carry sail after a certain point. It simply means discomfort without adequate gain. This is especially the case if there is a sea running. It was perfect ocean weather, and could we have had the wind aft, those days would have been some of the most pleasant of our passage. Instead, they were the most disagreeable and tiresome. It was impossible to remain on deck unless clothed in oilers, 
as bird through water like a young fire engine, and so we had to pass the hours off watch below. All we had to read was one novel, a copy of Life, and the ads in the back of Brown's Almanac. While we had been talking, the dawn had appeared, a faint glow in the northeast, and the wind is letting go, as it does with the coming of the sun. I love the dawn, and that is why my choice of watches is the middle. The dawn is the coming of life. The heart rushes ahead to greet it. You shout as you would at an advancing army whose banners give promise of rescue and victory. Look, there are the lances topping the horizon, the shining helmets, the flags, the mirror-like shields, rank after rank, battalion after battalion, gorgeous in all the colours of heaven, they sweep towards you. Oh, for a trumpet blast or a roll of drums, for look, the king is coming, red serene, he lifts his head, a single black belt of cloud across his brow, and then he rolls proudly up, pouring out like a flood of wine, a stream of crimson that lanes the sea from horizon to horizon. The clouds doff their colours, slip back, melt and pass away, and he begins his daily swing, majestic, unattended, the Lord Master and Arbitrator of all. After I had taken the old gentleman's bearing by the standard compass, I bowed with great deference, for his was the very person we needed as our first landfall was getting close aboard. At quarter to eight, we hove bird two so as to get sights, to eat, and to clean up below and about the decks. The sight put her in 35 degrees, 25 minutes north, and the islands are in 31 degrees. But we had worked considerably to the north and were 40 degrees, 21 minutes that day at noon. No getting down if it held, but at noon it dropped off and gave us our chance. Putting her under power, we headed to the southward. All afternoon the sea kept going down and by night it was smooth and the wind just a whisper. June 28th, and at noon we were out 17 days from Wask Point and 18 days from Providence, and the nearest of the Azores, how far away. This day begins with cloudless sky, light south by east wind and smooth sea, under power until 5am, fine day, finest of all, good sights. At noon, Corvo bore east by south three quarters point south, distant 103 miles. Under power again at quarter to 1pm, calm all afternoon and night. At 12.30am, light off starboard bow, steamer. We had 33 miles of latitude and 97 miles of longitude, and I told the boys to look out for land about 5 o'clock, right ahead, with Corvo on the port bow and Flores on the starboard. At midnight, a steamer passed some five miles away, headed east, our usual luck. Every steamer we passed went by in the night. At four o'clock, Thurber took the helm and I went below. It was a calm, misty morning, and at that time you could not see far. A few minutes after five, I heard the deck hailing. Hey, skipper, land ahead. How does it bear? Right ahead. Looks like two big rocks, one on the port bow and one on the starboard. We're aimed to go right between them. Corvo and Flores, keep her on the same course. And turning over, I went to sleep again. Thus did Bird make the Azores at 5am on the 29th day of June, being out 17 days, 16 hours, 30 minutes.
Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.